Blog Talk Radio. Georgetown. 
He also owns his own consulting company, is a media commentator, a member of the Cold Case Solving uh, Vidoc Society, gives lectures, presentations throughout the U.S. and internationally, and teaches forensic linguistics through the, both California University of Pennsylvania and Hofstra University. Uh, we are a live show. Calls are welcome. Our phone number, 347-989-1171. And please, for more information about Mr. James R. Fitzgerald, you can visit www.jamesrfitzgerald.com. And I went to that website, Lisa, a very informative website and, and an awesome, awesome read as well there uh, with Mr. Fitzgerald. But I'm going to go ahead and bring him on, Lisa, and I know you've got some questions sure. lined up. I do as well. But I'm going to go ahead and uh, let you take the lead on this one for a minute. Uh, so without any further ado, uh, we bring on to the show Mr. James Fitzgerald. Good evening, Brad, Mr. Uh, Fitzgerald. Yeah, Lisa and Brad, thanks for the – and Cody, thanks for the nice introduction. It's great to be here on your very first show. I'm going to call you NCFC for short. Saves a lot of souls there. No country for conspiracy. I'm a language guy, so let me go with that for now. <laughs> and FBI likes giving acronyms and oh, initials. Acronyms. Are, they, are they acronyms? Yeah, yeah I think they this love, is an they initialism. They call these an initialism. An initialism. So, um, I guess that makes this and no, I'm not even going to try and pronounce it. Uh, <laughs> um. So yes, you are. You were assigned fresh out of uh, the FBI's Quantico pro- profiler training. Uh, you'd been an FBI agent for about seven years, assigned to the New York office. So you had a, a quite a law enforcement career already under your belt. At I that did, time. and. As I recount in my third book, um, it was interesting kind of uh, handing, passing of the torch from John Douglas as he was retiring in June of 1995. And I had just got to Quantico after seven years in New York City as a brand new profiler, a supervisory special agent. And he was, uh, he gave us, you know, a half day of training on the Unabomb case, a bunch of us new profilers. And I didn't even know at that point that, uh, I would be assigned to San Francisco within a matter of weeks, but lo and behold, I was, and, uh, and I've been friendly with John Douglas over the years. We've stayed in touch, and uh, he did a great job in the early days of that case, putting the various profiles together, media strategy, things like that, and uh, he was glad when I got on board. Within nine months, we had it solved, so, uh, but it was a teamwork all the way around in the FBI, and I was glad to have been put in charge of the language analysis of the case, which is really what got us inside Kaczynski's cabin and, uh, and, and the uh, evidence uh, that we found there and, of course, the arrest and conviction and everything else. Correct. And um, I know that Kaczynski wasn't giving you all a lot of evidence to work with. You had, you had the bombs and you had how they were constructed, and that can tell you some things. Uh, and, but then you needed more from him to be able to determine who he was. And you got that through his writings and a Georgetown um, language, language professor. What was his linguistics professor? And that was where you found this new uh, skill 
that you could bring well, into yeah. the task force to advance it or advance the You're investigation. Right. You're right. In the 17 years um, of the investigation through, um, you know, the summer of 95, there was virtually no physical or forensic evidence to go on. Uh, I mean, the, the bomb techs and the, the FBI lab people knew that the devices were made by the same person. They had FC, the initials FC carved on the bottom. And of course the, uh, the you know, the, the, the plungers, the, uh, the, the explosive material, the detonating, the fusing, they could see they were all consistent throughout the various uh, devices. Um, they were improving, of course, with each device, as serial bombers always do. But but there was very little to go on. There were a few letters early on. We called those the ruse letters, one from 1980, one from 1985. But then it wasn't until 1993 he started writing, uh, this is the Unabomber. We had no name to assign to him, a, a real name, uh, the, uh, the ideological letters uh, to the New York Times and to other people, other entities. And that's when... Uh, of course, shortly after that, then the manifesto came in. A lot of people don't know he never called it the manifesto. He always referred to it as his article. It was the media that called it a manifesto. But that's where the real evidence uh, uh, was present. And that's why once I got out there, it was brand new to us, and I just dug into that thing. And that's when we started coming up with all kinds of clues. And we said, we got to get this thing published. He wants it published. Let's, 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 let's do him the favor of doing it because I'm pretty sure we're going to find out through someone out there uh, who may have written this thing. And it took us a few months, but we eventually did. Correct. And then that's what it takes because somebody has to give you the identity of a suspect in order for you to get known writing to make that comparison and determine whether the two writings are from the same person. Yeah, and to go back, now, Lisa, to your earlier question, there was a professor named Roger Shy at Georgetown University, and it was before I had taken my linguistics courses there. And um, and for my master's, uh, I didn't even think about going back for a second master's, and we gave him an advanced copy of the manifesto. He looked at it, and he gave us a profile of the author, which was pretty close to who it actually turned out to be. And, um yeah. Uh, and that kind of guided me on the way to looking at language more than just, you know, a convenient set of words put together or looking at the documents more than just for fingerprints or DNA or indented writings. Let's look at the language style itself, the content of it, the manner in which it's uh, related on paper. And that actually is what uh, took it to the next level. And we had many suspects, by the way, um, before mm-hmm. Kaczynski came up. And I mentioned that in my book, of course, but there were a number of suspects that I was, and I was kind of the language guy out there at the Unibomb Task Force. They said, look, uh, Fitz, of course, is my nickname, Fitz. And they said, oh, another suspect came up. We're following him around, you know, Tallahassee right now. Oh, another guy down in Alabama. Oh, we have a guy up in Seattle. And here's some writings of his. And I would look at them and say, nope, not him, not him, not him. And again, this isn't handwriting. We're not. I'm not a handwriting analyst. Mm-hmm. This is the the uh, content. This is the language style itself, the phraseology, the terminology, the wording, sentence length, all these types of things. Active, passive voice, uh, and uh, and that's when we. Uh, that's when I started developing the, uh, the the methodology to compare this to any new writings coming in. Finally, in February of '96, 
got a call from a guy named David Kaczynski, actually his lawyer, and everything kind of came together from that point on. Correct. And I, I feel uh, among the innocent people involved in this was David Kaczynski. He was trying to do the right thing. He's a good person. And he deals with a lot of guilt, I think, because he was damned if he did and damned if he didn't. If he did turn Ted in, Ted's going to hate him. If he doesn't, someone else might die. No, you're absolutely right. And uh, uh, I never met David, despite what the miniseries showed, but um, I'm very familiar with him. Uh, He did take the million-dollar reward which was offered, and after some very basic legal expenses he paid off, he donated all the rest of it to the victims of his brother. And uh, I think he's a class guy. He's, a, you know, anti-death penalty throughout the country. And, you know, I respect mm-hmm. him for that. And uh, he still goes on speaking tours and uh, and works to, uh, uh, you know, get the death penalty off the books. And whether you agree with it or not, I respect his, uh, you know, his work in that regard. Yes, I do. And he's still trying to protect his brother. Uh, he is. I don't think because... Uh, go ahead. I don't. I don't think Ted appreciates it too much because he refuses to talk to him. But I think David's accepted that at this point. Yes, but Ted is. Um, you know, Ted is a special individual. I think, of course, the high intelligence is one aspect. But I mean, he was on his way to a what could have been a brilliant career except he didn't like people. Well, um, yeah, he'd be, he'd be perfect right now with the uh, coronavirus, right? Isolating himself. Um, he'd, mm-hmm. he'd fit right into this mentality. Of course, he's not far off being in a prison cell all by himself for 23-7-365. But, um, no, he was absolutely brilliant. And uh, the people at Berkeley where he was a professor were very reluctant to see him go and try to talk him out of it. They knew he was a brilliant mathematician. He wasn't the best of teachers. Now, there's a difference, you know. You can really know your subject material, mm-hmm. but if you're in a classroom, you also have to have the skill set of how to impart it to others and, and present your information in an understandable mm-hmm. style. And we actually interviewed some of his former students uh, after he was arrested, and it was uh, very interesting to hear how uh, how he conducted himself in the classroom. And uh, he wasn't their favorite teacher, that's for sure. Right, right. And, you know, Brad has a question. Did you, you want to go ahead and, and jump in, Brad? Yeah, I did. I just, I just wanted to, uh, to ask you, and, of course, uh, some of the listening audience uh, is probably uh, too young to remember back then. And, of course, you guys made the arrest, was it, it was in 1996, correct? April 3rd, 1996. And so, you know, I listened to you on another podcast uh, earlier today, um, you know, and, and right around that 94, 95 uh, time frame is when the Internet really started to explode uh, into the commercial form that we know it now. So can you tell me a little bit um, about what it was like with some of the primitive technology compared to today um, when you were trying to – figure out uh, who was actually doing this? Sure. And, and Brad, you brought up a good point. There may be some younger listeners out there who maybe didn't read my books or didn't even watch the miniseries. And real quick, Unibom is, in fact, an acronym 
I think NCFC would be an initialism, just like FBI. It it's, won't get caught up in that. But Unibomb stands for University Airline Bombings because the earliest victims of this serial bomber uh, was uh, they were his targets. So, um, and of course, uh, we didn't know he was anti-technology until the first uh, several letters started coming in to the New York Times, starting in '93, then more in '94, and then of course his manifesto lays out a very a uh, cogent argument regarding the evils of the industrial society and uh, and uh, and big government and big entertainment and big business, and that's when we knew a lot more about him. Um, and he didn't have the advantage of the internet, and if he did have it, or somehow had access to it, he wouldn't use it because, of course, he was anti-technology. And people would even ask me, well, if he's anti-technology, why did he use a copy machine to mail out five copies of the manifesto to his five different recipients? And I said, no, he used carbon paper. There may be some young people out here not even sure what carbon paper is, but you line it up behind your typewriter paper, you stick it in the typewriter carriage, and it goes through five different copies. So um, uh, he was that much anti-technology. Of course, he was still willing to use batteries and the U.S. mail and, uh, and, and modern conveniences such as that to get his uh, IEDs, improvised explosive devices, either uh, either placed or mailed to the people he wanted to. But to go back to your question, Brad, um, yeah, I mean, uh, I was just starting to get more and more involved uh, online myself. The early days of Prodigy, if you remember, and I guess America Online, as it was you know called back then, and um, and of course uh, Ted would have nothing to do with that. We didn't know this at the time, but we just know he didn't, living in his ten foot by twelve foot cabin in, in Montana. But um, but we in fact were using it and um, to try to help with this case, and we were having databases set up in which we were putting. We were pretty sure the Unabomber, uh, this is by 95 when I got to the task force, he had, he had lived in Illinois, he had lived in Utah, and he had lived in California at some time in his life. So we figured he hopefully had a driver's license during that time. Um, let's go and figure out, um, you know, uh, who, who could we run all the date, all, all the license holders you know, uh, white males are usually who serial bombers are. Could we run those through and try to come up with even a thousand names of people back then who lived in those three different states, white males between certain ages, and then start, of course, trying to pare those down to who may have had military background, law enforcement, you know, advanced degrees, perhaps, and maybe areas of chemistry, whatever, who could put these types of devices together. But it turns out these databases, um, there was no database that we had in the FBI or even the federal government that was large enough to hold all of this information because we also started importing university information in students and faculty. And there was no database large enough. Finally, the U S military uh, had a database large enough and, um, and they lent us their software or perhaps even hardware back then and uh, eventually we got uh, this information in. The problem is we didn't go back far enough. We made the, the, the profile of the Unabomber was uh, of a college-aged person in 1978 at his first bombing because that was at Northwestern University, and the University of Chicago was in there too. So we thought he was mm -hmm. like 20 to 22 then, but we didn't realize he was actually – uh, already a graduate, and he was like 10 years older than that. So that's why his name was never actually captured 
in any of these databases. If they went back far enough, they would have had a Ted Kaczynski with a driver's license in Illinois, Utah, and uh, California at one time, plus having gone to Berkeley. Uh, and it, it, somehow he would have been among those few thousand names, and perhaps we could have narrowed it down. So um, we had some search um, some um, search software that I had never used before, but we could uh, upload the um, manifesto into a software program, and all of a sudden you could search every word, every phrase, and this is for me uh, as a fledgling l- linguist. I didn't even call myself that back then, but just to be able to search for any word and have it go right away to the, to the exact page, the exact paragraph you want, um, that was amazing because before you had to have some kind of a glossary or, or, or mm-hmm. you know, a little dictionary uh, of sorts to keep those uh, keep those items in line. So, uh, so software and it's, uh, and, and computer assistance in its very earliest forms um, were in fact utilized by the FBI, much to the chagrin of the Unabomber at the time, if he knew it, but, uh, uh, but it did open some doors for us and help us get to identify them. But ultimately in the long run, it was me and my team looking at page after page after page of writings of the Unabomber and comparing them to page after page after page of some suspects who came along. Then all of a sudden, here comes a guy named Ted Kaczynski, and that's when it all came together for us. Right, and, and, and the reason that I ask that question is because even even at uh, and I'm only 41 years old, but uh, you know I think. To myself, especially with today's technology, you know, how could this guy uh, be able to basically mail explosive devices? It seems like you couldn't. I don't know. You probably could. I'm sure there's a way, but uh, it just seems so impossible for him to do what he did today uh, that he did back then. Uh, so you know, I also you know, and I know that some of the listeners, you know probably don't fathom that they grew up with a smartphone um you know and and we were still using bag phones at that time if you had the money for it uh so i it was just one of those interesting things i had thought about listening now i wanted to ask you now you may get into it later in the show but one of the more uh funny moments that i'd listened to in that other podcast uh was when and i'm at least i promise it's not that type of show but uh, he did you had mentioned that there was uh, in some of the letters uh, down the column it spelled certain things out, and you had mentioned that I guess somebody had gave you a bunch of grief uh, in the department, and you would email or write them letters, and basically they didn't know that you were basically telling them to eat shit. Oh, okay, yes. Um, <laughs> so let me give you a little background here. Um, um and I'll start out with Unibom, uh, move ahead first. So, yeah, I was the first person ever when I first was assigned to the Unibom task force. I looked at all the documents very carefully. Uh, these are copies, of course. I'm not, I'm not worried about fingerprints or anything. And I just happened to notice on the, um, on the left-hand side of, uh, of what we called um, uh, U2, there was a 1985 letter to uh, Dr. McConnell at the University of Michigan. And I just, I was actually putting all my paperwork down on a flight to San Francisco. And I just happened to like be half tired about a half hour away from landing. I looked over at this page was open. And instead of actually trying to read it, I looked down the left-hand column. And um, and there is a um, the first letter of each uh, 
basically of each uh, of the address and the, and, the, and the first letter of each paragraph spelled out the words, Dad, it is I. Uh, three, just three words, Dad, four words, sorry, it is I. Uh, grammatically correct, technically speaking. And um, I said, wow, I, I wonder what that means when I get out to the task force, I'll run this by some of the bosses there. They must know this already, and maybe they looked into it from a psychological behavioral factor. Maybe this guy has some kind of parental or father issue, uh, you, you know, you name it. So I go out to San Francisco, and we talk. I meet the guys. I even waited like the second or third day. I said, oh, boss, by the way, have you seen this on the, on the second document from 85? Dad, it is I. And he was amazed. And it was really me finding that, which – to this day, well, we know he didn't like his father. His father committed suicide. Uh, this is Ted's father. And, um, and he didn't even, you know, show up for his funeral. He called the family a week later, and he had all kinds of issues, as he wrote about in his, uh, di- in his diary and his autobiography. He had all kinds of issues about that. But it really, me finding that dad a design line, uh, uh, sentence written, <laughs> written vertically from top to bottom is when the boss said, uh, Fitz, you're in charge of all the language here. And everything that comes in, we want you to be in, uh, running with it, put a team together, and, uh, and you, that's, your, that's your thing. So now, Brad, to go back in time, the reason I picked up on that, first of all, I was aware of poem, um, uh, the poet E.E. E. Cummings. He would write, have little clues he'd put into his, um, uh, into his sentences, things like that, and, and, his, and his various uh, stanzas of his poems. And I was always appreciative of that. So here, anyone who's read my book, too, will know in the center section for about two years, I was the victim of a real harassment campaign in my police department, Ben Salem PD, suburban Philadelphia. I was a detective sergeant, and I won't get into all the details, but just say I was harassed on a daily basis by my lieutenant. And back in those days, he would have a secretary type out a memo. They would hand it to me, and there'd be like seven questions for me to answer, and I had to sit and spend my day answering these questions, all BS, nothing that made any uh, real difference in life. And after about the 15th of these memos of my responses, I knew I couldn't win the individual um, uh, war right now, but I wanted some wins of battles. And what I wound up doing is typing these responses. I did the typing myself, and I arranged it just like I told you, Dad, it is I, in the first um, – I actually did it with every every line going down the page. I would uh, I would write certain secret messages to this lieutenant. And you're right. One of my first ones was simply E A T space S H I T. And um, the next day, he gives me a memo. I write one back. Go to hell. The next one, go f yourself. Put the whole word spelled out. Another one, drop dead. Another one was Viola Rules. Now, Viola was the chief who got kicked out and fired, and he was the chief that I got along well with. So it's all these little things I put in there. It was a little – you can almost say it was a childish game, and I'll even admit it after all these years, but it was my little way of getting satisfaction of, like, instead of walking to the office and saying, go blank yourself, I'm basically putting it on paper to him. And uh, I saved those memos for years. I eventually got rid of some of them. Uh, but uh, that was my little way of playing that game. So here, whoever knew 10 years later, I'd be working the biggest case in the country at the time with multiple deaths already uh, responsible uh, from this particular serial bomber. And I wound up uh, uh, focusing on 
the outside, the vertical writings of that uh, number two letter of the Unabomber. And maybe, just maybe, I found a code in there. And uh, uh, it led to me being put in charge of the document analysis. And again, as I've said a few times, the rest is history. Right. And the, the thing that jumped out at you in the, we'll call it the article, uh, to humor Ted, uh, was you can't eat your cake and have it too. That phrase. You're right. And, and uh, let's call, go ahead. That, that, that's I'm ready. Because <laughs> I... That is that was like the the moment in the in the miniseries that I had me on the edge of my seat of my seat. That was like the breakthrough. Well, you're, you're right. It was the um, it was the um, it was the evidence that the prosecutor that was assigned to us at the UTF Unabomb Task Force. It was the evidence he really needed because he wasn't that confident about. Um, the other language evidence we were coming up with. There were some sentences that were similar. There was some wording that was similar, some terms, some phraseology. And we knew all along, and I have it memorized, it's paragraph 185 of the manifesto, you know, something about the environment and, uh, you know, big government or something. But then that paragraph has ended. uh, Well, you can't eat your cake and have it too. So I knew that was there. I knew it was reversed from how it's always said. You know, I just gave a TED talk at my uh, alma mater, Penn State, about a month ago. It's on YouTube now. Anybody wants to look it up. And that was the title of my TED talk, uh, 12 minutes long. But I really, I walked the, uh, view, uh, the, the audience that day, uh, the live audience, and certainly the YouTube audience now. I walked them through. How did I even know that was done in reverse? And, of course, there was at least three songs um, when I grew up from the four seasons from Bob Dylan and the Statler brothers who all use that phrase, uh, that, that proverb, if you will, in that order, you can't have your cake and eat it too. And here we have the Unabomber. You can't eat your cake and have it too. So again, I'm going through everything. I'm finding all these similarities. I'm going to this prosecutor almost, uh, you know, a couple days a week and Fitz, this stuff is good. It's, it's nice to know but we need something else to get the arrest warrant or the search warrant. So finally, um, uh, as anyone who watched the series, read my books would know, um, fortunately the Kaczynski family saved just about every document that Ted ever wrote. And they were shipping them off to us like 10 or 20 at a time. And finally, uh, document uh, T, T for Ted, 137, was a letter that Ted Kaczynski wrote to the Saturday Review magazine in the early 1970s. And, you know, the evils of, of, of uh, pollution and, uh, and, and, and litter and dirtying the oceans and all that stuff. And lo and behold, it also ends. Uh, but you can't eat your cake and have it too. Exactly how it was in paragraph 185 of the article slash manifesto. And I ran right down to the prosecutor Fitz, that's what we need. Let's get the warrant together now. And within uh, a week, we had it all ready, and we were uh, we were inside his cabin. Now, once his – I know he kept a, a, like a, a journal, but it was all in code. Once that was decoded, did you have an opportunity, a, opportunity to review that? 
Yes. Um, when we got inside his cabin, we found a lot of documents because uh, he had a lot of time on his hands, of course. And, um, of course, a handwritten copy on yellow legal paper of the manifesto. And for people old enough in your audience, I'm one of them. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, when you had a term paper in high school or in college, you would write it out first by hand. And then, of course, you'd, you know, you'd edit it, you'd cross out. Sometimes you would literally cut and paste the papers. And then, then you'd sit down at the typewriter and put it together. Well, that's exactly mm-hmm. what Kaczynski did because he wouldn't use a computer, of course, or a word processor. So we found that in there and a bunch of other documents, schematics of how his devices were designed and chemical formula related to it. But he had, um, he had a journal. He had notes. He had an autobiography and just some loose papers that he kept. And um, not one of those was entirely in code, but there were definitely pages, um, you know, at least a half a page or so. uh, And then, you know, another half a page later, sometimes just a few sentences later, and they were written in a very elaborate numerical code that fortunately through all the writings that we found hidden in his attic, um, kind of hidden away in the middle of, of innocuous papers, there was the key to this code. And we've got all of that. I think we actually went to the NSA back then in 96 or so, and they, and they tried to break his numerical code on, it, on their own. They couldn't do it. It was so sophisticated. It made no sense. We finally gave them the key, and within a week or two, they said, all right, here's what you need. Yeah, we finally broke it. Thanks for the key. And, um, and it actually listed very specifically, I bombed this place on this date. I killed this person on this date. This device was made of this. But uh, in all his regular uh, uh, prose, his uh, English written, even his Spanish written uh, materials, because he taught himself how to write Spanish. He had never been to a Spanish speaking country in his life. He had never taken a Spanish course, but he picked up a few, you know, uh, Spanish uh, one and Spanish two books. And he wrote these letters that he kept in the cabin. And we had our Spanish translators look at them. He said, these are perfect. There's not a mistake in them. It's in fact, they're a real Spaniard or even Mexican probably wouldn't even write or talk that way, but they were just so perfect by, uh, by the rules of grammar and everything by the country, uh, for, for the language from which, uh, you know, they would come. So the bottom line is he did writing code. It took us a while to break it. And, uh, but we eventually did. And, uh, I'm still convinced there's code in the manifesto and some of his other letters, but, and we looked at every left-hand column upwards, downwards. We looked at right-hand columns and to this day we haven't found them. Uh, most of that stuff is online, and your listeners out there, if they want to go on and play around with that, maybe they'll get lucky. But uh, but we got all we needed from the manifesto, including You Can't Eat Your Cake and Have It Too, to be found on the other letter that he wrote in the early 70s, and that's really all, all the evidence we needed to uh, put him behind bars for life. Now, in that journal, the decoded one, was there any indication that he – believed he was starting a revolution? Um, no. Or was he just no. doing this for the sake of of the violence? Well, you're asking me a couple of different things here. Uh, he, he, he spoke in the code, in his coded language, it was only really about the bombing devices, the victims, the timings, his traveling from Montana 
to Washington State, down to San Francisco. He would he would work, write that um, in code. As far as the revolution, I'm not sure he used the word revolution in the manifesto. He may have after all these years. I'm not sure I remember that. But he certainly was talking about a movement. He certainly wanted a change in our society. He certainly wanted to denigrate anything that happened post-industrial revolution, which you know, mm-hmm. the 1700s or so, and anybody involved in psychology, psychiatry, academia, um, uh, and he was a former academic, uh, and of course, big business, big government, entertainment, all those things. He was against all of those leftists he didn't like. Funny, he didn't use the word liberal. He used the word leftist. He was anti-leftist. Um, and, um, and these are what he railed against. Uh, but uh, he didn't he didn't hide that in code. He made that pretty clear to the people who wanted to read it. Now, now we can take this to the next step. Is that really what he was all about? Or was he did he have psychological issues of some sort to some level? He hated himself. He hated, um, you know, his life. And he wanted an excuse to kill people. He didn't really need them. But down the line, he didn't want to be seen as some crazed madman who just randomly put, you know, bombs and IEDs out for the general public uh, to pick up. His targets were always very selective in his mind, and uh, and they served a purpose for him. And at some point uh, after his six-year hiatus, he decided, you know what, I'm going to tell the public why I'm doing this. But I think it's much more complex than just wanting to start a revolution, just like Charlie Manson with his helter skelter uh, nonsense, you know, in the late sixties, that wasn't what he was all about. He, uh, you know, he was mad. He didn't get some songs published or other Mm -hmm. people may have stole them from him. And, you know, uh, and, you know, life had, uh, you know, served him a, you know, a a bad existence. So, so a lot of these people that claim these um, over the top ideological issues as the reasoning behind their violent behavior, it really comes down to very personal, and in many cases, psychologically oriented. Right. And you are familiar with the Harvard study done by Dr. Uh, Henry Murray. I which am. His brother David attributes his uh, break with reality, more or less, to that. Well, um, his mother actually attributes a week-long visit in the hospital to his initial break with reality. When he was about two or three, he had some kind of a sickness, and um, they took him to a Chicago hospital, and my doctor, yeah, we have to keep him here for a week. And it's probably hard for a lot of young parents to envision today. But back then, they just took your kid. You couldn't see him for a week. And they said mm-hmm. when they got little Ted back, he was a different boy. Um, so, now, I'm not, I'm not attesting to that or saying that's the reason why he became a serial bomber. Not at all. So then years later, of course, he's 16 years old. He's brilliant uh, in, in the sciences and in, in, in his academics but he's very much behind in, uh, in his uh, social development. But here he goes off to uh, Harvard, at least two years younger than the other freshmen there. And within a year or so, he signs up for this, uh, these, uh, these scientific tests under, uh, under Dr. Murray. And um, I will say here, I don't know, besides what 
you know, what was presented in the miniseries and besides what's written about these experiments over the years. Um, it wasn't our job in the FBI to do much research about that. The defense was looking into this. If it went to trial, okay. they were going to bring this up as the factor behind it. It wasn't the FBI's job to research exactly how much uh, or, or what, what these experiments entailed for how long. All, all I say whenever I sum up my feelings about this is there were allegedly hundreds, if not thousands, of people that were part of these experiments. The only one we know of that turned into a serial killer was Ted Kaczynski. So there are many other causal factors that, that played a role in him deciding to lead the violent life that he did, uh, or at least uh, you know, uh, presenting violent situations to other people. So, um, And I think he wrote uh, – there was nothing in his uh, autobiography or his journals about these studies – now you could say maybe he was so bothered by them, they were so dark and so deep within him that he wanted uh, – he couldn't even write to himself about these. Um, uh, but I think he did an interview or wrote letters to somebody over the years, and he said, ah, they weren't that big of a deal. So, uh, But who knows? He, he, doesn't want, he, he is so conscious of not being seen as crazy, as psychologically uh, you know, uh, uh, disoriented. Uh, or, or diagnosed with anything of any sort of a mental health issue that even if he could use that as an excuse, which drove him over the edge, I don't think he'd want to do that. So those records have all been destroyed. I, I understand. And I, I don't think at this point we'll ever get through uh, any get any more information about them and, and what actually happened back then. But right. it, it isn't like they unleashed a, an army of serial killers after these experiments. From what I understand, Ted's about the only one. And, you know, I researched it a little bit. And, I mean, there was a legitimate purpose to measure stress on personality because Dr. Murray's thing was personality. Um, And they couldn't tell you if you're participating in that. They can't say, okay, we're going to bring you in here and we're going to be really mean, but we don't mean it. Don't take it personally because that would defeat the whole purpose of the study to begin with. But, um, yeah, I don't think it did. And I, as I understand it, his particular study was measuring stress on personality of high IQ freshmen in college. There were 24 <clears throat> participants in that particular segment. And like you said, Ted Kaczynski is the only one who's gone off the rails. Certainly as far as we know. And look, years later, there was the Stanford prison experiment. Uh, I think that was in the 70s. Uh, And, you know, uh, there were a lot of abuses done there, too. I don't think any of those people turned into uh, uh, violent offenders after the fact. And and it's a lot of these types of experiments that now these institutional review boards have been set up, IRBs for short. And even working on my master's degree, I had to get IRB approval to do any kind of basic language experiment, uh, mm-hmm. uh, even minor, just asking someone what time it is and see if they give military time or, or, or regular time. So, um, so, um, but it's because of these bizarre experiments at, at Harvard and other places, uh, not to mention, you know, down south where they would insert, you know, uh, inject syphilis. Right. prisoners and all that stuff and he just can't do that stuff anymore and, and even with I, the mind stuff that they did at Harvard just can't do it yeah I, I just I don't think I, the ethics then were different 
course. And this was, uh, from what I understand as well on from the research I've done, Ted went into Harvard with these social isolationist ideals. And so they didn't make him antisocial. He was already there. It may have been Definitely. a factor to a degree, but not – this was not the thing because there was, what, 16 years before he sent his first bomb. Right. Unless he was like a Manchurian candidate or something uh, uh, that, uh, you know, outside of politics that he just, uh, you know, he had the seed planted in him and, you know, wait a decade and a half later, uh, Mr. Kaczynski then starts sending the bombs out. But no, that wasn't the case at all. He was a very confused person. And you know what? Um, I'm looking, I'm sure you and your listeners are familiar with the incel um, category that in recent years, that term has been um, coined involuntary celibacy. And a lot of these violent offenders, men, feel they can't date or have relations with the women that they would really like to date and have relations. So they commit violent acts. They kill some women. They kill men. There's a whole dictionary of, of, of words, how these certain men and women are described and what they want to do to them. And we've had incidents in uh, Santa Monica, I think it was. Uh, Southern California. There was one in Toronto uh, where one of these incel guys just, uh, you know, went crazy and started killing people. So um, I honestly think Ted um, was an early, is an early example of this incel because I did read all the documents in his, um, in his cabin once he was uh, arrested and out of there. And um, if there's one theme that carries through them all, it's a, uh, it's his frustration, his absolute uh, total incomprehension uh, of why he can't meet a woman and hold a relationship of any sorts. He was, by his own writing, a straight male, uh, yet he never had intimate relations with a woman. The, the, the closest he came was the woman, uh, uh, Carmichael, uh, in a... In the factory, he worked with his brother. They went out once, I think, baked the pie or something. And she said, Ted, it was nice, but, you know, no thanks for seeing you again outside of work. And he went crazy and put all these stickers over the factory. That's what David had mm-hmm. to fire his older brother from his company Correct. because of what he did. So this is the frustration level that this guy had. It's really the reason he, he was in the cabin for about six, seven years from 72 until 78, six years. Uh, then he decided to move back to uh, Chicago with his parents. Part of that was to meet a woman. It just didn't work, and uh, he instead decided to start building bombs. So in a way, the whole incel uh, factor kicked in there with him too, as far as I'm concerned. And uh, I think it, it, there's definitely a correlation with him and other violent criminals too, not just Kaczynski and certainly ones we're seeing today. And now you go on the internet, there's all kinds of websites devoted to incel and, and these guys who think they aren't getting what they deserve uh, in terms of sexual relations with women. And that was certainly Ted. Ted wanted to um, change sex at one point at the university of Michigan. You know, well, we hear right. about people transitioning now and, you know, self identifying, whatever, at one point, he was so frustrated, he wanted to become a woman. I guess he thought he would have better chances of having sex as a woman. And he somehow thought he could walk into the psychologist's office 
and they'd give him pills that afternoon and the surgery the following week. And he was told it would be a five-year process. This is even back in the, uh, when would this be, like uh, the mid-60s at his uh, 60s, doctoral yeah. program, University of Michigan. And he couldn't believe this. And it, he wrote in his own words, and I read them, I can remember to this day, he left the doctor's office that day madder than he's ever been and decided in so many words, the heck with becoming a woman. Forget that. I'm going to kill people instead. And that's when the seed was planted, by his own words, uh, after that mm-hmm. interview, if you will, or that consultation with the psychologist or psychiatrist at the University of Michigan that said, no, this is a, you know, we'll, we'll work you through this, but this is a five-year process. It will not happen next week. And that's when he said, I'm going to kill people instead. And uh, took him a few years to put all of it together. But uh, by 1978, that's what he was trying to do with his first successful homicide in 1985. Right. And um, going back a little bit to uh, a journey to the center of the mind, you have book one, which deals with your early life and growing up in Philadelphia. Um, I can't wait to read it. To uh, Have you ever found the guy that stole your bicycle? <laughs> I've heard you well, talk you about that on several podcasts. I cannot wait to read the full story of the investigation Um, one of the things i I love is your writing style is like you're sitting there telling me the story it's very engaging and i've i've really enjoyed it well thank you lisa i appreciate that i've been told that before and um i've been told if you go into some of the reviews you have to have thick skin if you write a book give oh he wrote in three paragraphs what he could have written in one I'm a firm, but I'm a detail guy, and I like details if I'm watching a movie, if I'm reading a book. So I don't want to make it sound like I, I go overboard with it, but I like to tell a story, and I'm assuming that everybody knows the world of law enforcement or criminal justice, so I try to explain what it is. And, uh, and before I forget, um, my third book, it's the only book that's in an audio book, and I want to tell people as a – I've announced this before, but I'll say it again on uh, your podcast. You can get it for free right now. If you go to freeaudiobookcodes.com, one word, freeaudiobookcodes.com, and search my name, my book, A Journey to the Center of the Mind, and there's a bunch of codes there. You just hit it, and you have the audiobook in your phone, and you can start listening to it uh, you know, within minutes. So uh, I still get royalties for it. It's a good deal here, but we're hoping that you know some people get it for free. They'll tell people about it. Others will buy it on audio.com or Amazon, and all the books are on Amazon. If they go to my website, you can contact me. I'll send signed books to people. I'm glad to do that. I've sent them all over the world. Um, it's only like $5 shipping and handling in this country. But I've had people from Scandinavia, Australia, they want my book signed. And it's like, you know, double the price to get them over there. But I'll, uh, I'll gladly do it uh, uh, once they uh, send me the money. So, uh, yeah, so the books have been uh, going very well. I'm writing the fourth book now going to tie up some loose ends from one, two, and three. So yeah, one is me growing up in Philly and a lot of interesting things that kind of played into my later life in terms of, uh, of crimes I worked and uh, investigations conducted. Uh, book two is entirely my 11 years as a police officer. And I walked the reader through being a rookie cop the first night, a big arrest I made that night, front page headlines the next day. And uh, a bunch of other cops were mad at me because I got in the newspaper when they didn't after being on the job for years. And then things that went good, great arrest, uh, 
arrested an international hitman as a uh, young detective sergeant with the U.S. Marshals. Uh, so, yes, and then the, the, the politics kicked in. That's all book two. And then it works me. It works the reader through how I got into the FBI. You know, I failed the first test. I took the FBI test and I missed it by a point and I was ready to give up. You can only take the written test twice. And I took it a second time and I got in and uh, and uh, it started a whole new career for me. And book three is the first 10 years of my FBI career, including uh, a long chapter at the end. because I like detail. And it's uh, about the Unabom case with a bunch of uh, FAQs at the end. People ask and tie the loose ends together from the miniseries. So, uh, uh, yeah, so I appreciate you bringing the books up. And uh, jamesrfitzgerald.com is my website. And uh, the free audiobookcodes.com. You get the free copies of the audiobooks. I appreciate you mentioning that, Lisa. And I'm glad you well, enjoy my writing I, I thank you for, for publishing them because they are. They're really you know, very good, and they're not dry. The detail is, I found, you know, very helpful because when you're referencing something in book three from book one, you you summarize it. Um, I've, you've summarized the, the little messages for your commander right, that you yeah. left in your memos. Um, and then I, I didn't know that you worked closely with Jim Clemente. Oh yeah, good friend. We're we're very good. Friends. Which was a was a surprise because I've seen him on different true crime things. I didn't sure. realize you were also on Criminal Minds or a, a technical advisor on Criminal Minds. Yeah, for seasons three and four officially, and then um, then Jim Clemente retired. We had a handshake agreement. He moved to L.A. I never moved to L.A. Uh, that he took over there, but I still helped him. I was invited to the show's 200th anniversary party in Las Vegas. That was great. Uh, and uh, But, yeah, I was out on the set a number of times inside uh, the uh, the private jet, which, of course, was a, a big box in the studio uh, from the uh-huh. outside. It's funny what they can do in Hollywood. But, yeah, great actors, great writers, the showrunner. Uh, and I was very happy to be on that uh, show. And then that certainly opened doors for me for other shows, not to mention uh, Manhunt Unabomber including meeting the actors to that and, uh, and the writers and helping them, uh, you know, craft that whole storyline. Yeah, that was a great, a great series. And I was watching over the weekend. I binged some of the episodes of Notorious. Oh, wow. Yeah. On um, that was on reels. Uh, I think we did about 10 or 11 different episodes, a different case for each one. Unabom was one mm-hmm. of them. And, uh, I know we did Aaron uh, Hernandez, uh, the former um, New England Patriot who, you know, killed a bunch of people, then killed himself. And um, and we did Patty Hearst. A lot of people forget about Patty Hearst and uh, when she was kidnapped in the early 70s. But what a story that was mm-hmm. in the U.S. Uh, and uh, so we did a special on her. So, yeah, it was uh, they did some good research on that. And I was kind of the bridge that uh, – as the profiler and behavioralist, along with some other experts they brought on. And I was glad to be a, to be a part of that show. Right. And then I haven't found Killer Profile yet, but I will. <laughs> it is out there. It was on A&E, and uh, we shot right in my uh, hometown of Philadelphia. And uh, it was me, Jim Clemente, and, uh, and Laura Richards, our friend from the U.K. And uh, we put the, that whole thing together. And, uh, uh, yeah, they were serial killers and uh, – and who most of them gave some kind of taped confession at the end. 
and we would, you know, halfway through the show, we would start analyzing their own words, which of course is my specialty. So that was uh, that was fun to do too. Mm-hmm. And you've also analyzed uh, Jody Arias's letter uh, for Crime Time that she wrote to Travis Alexander's family. Yeah, Potomac. that was a number of years ago, and um, um, yeah, it wasn't like a linguistic analysis per se because we all knew. We pretty much all knew she was the murderer, and and this letter was mm-hmm. just designed to cover up, uh, you know, uh, uh, the, the crime that you know she had so many different stories for. So uh, yeah, I, I I did some of that on the uh, the crime time show uh, back in the day. So uh, yeah, I've been retired uh, twelve years now. God, going on twelve and a half years uh, from the FBI, and uh, and um, I got kind of right into the Hollywood thing with Criminal Minds, and then doing different shows along the way and every once in a while a cable news channel will call me when there's a breaking case and um either i'll go to their studio or if i'm at the beach and don't feel like driving too far they'll send the truck to me and they'll do a satellite feed into the studio uh, i did that a few times over the summer on the uh jeffrey epstein suicide as well as the mass shootings in el paso and dayton uh they were like about a week apart two different appearances so yeah, whenever um, they want to bring me on board, I will. Um, uh, and if I think I know something about the subject matter, I'll do it. I'm not. I don't go on TV just to talk about stuff to see myself. I got to make sure I know the subject matter. So if it's a serial bomber or some kind of violent crime, um, um, I'm glad to talk about it and just give my insight into what I think may have happened. Uh, and uh, more often than not, I'm usually on the money in terms of uh, when it all gets played out. Right, right. That is the that's the amazing thing about uh, profiling. Although sometimes you have armchair profilers that don't quite get it. <laughs> it takes a lot of training and experience. Oh, absolutely. And I'm uh, yeah, I'm the first to acknowledge that. And even some of my former FBI profilers, I had some questions about, and some media coverage over the last few years as. Uh, has uh, brought that forth also, but uh, um, but yeah, it's 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 really just a combination of uh, of, of uh, a lot of experience, obviously education, and um, and really the most valuable thing is talking to prisoners and whether they you just lock them up as a as a uniform patrol officer, later as an FBI agent, or like as profilers, we would go into the prisons long after these guys were convicted, and these are serial rapists, serial killers. If anybody's watched uh, Mindhunter, uh, the show based on John Douglas's life, uh, you know he mm-hmm. was he was the first generation. He, him, and Bob Ressler and others, the first generation of profilers. Um, I'm, my group is considered like the third generation of profilers. So we learned a lot from them, and yes, we went to the prisons too. And there's nothing like sitting across a table from a convicted violent offender. And he knows he's not going anywhere. There's no deals to be cut. He's not getting a window, you know, cell or, mm-hmm. uh, you know, we, we may bring him in a pizza or something like that. But but to sit across from these guys and ask them, you know, uh, basically hundreds of questions over two days each sometimes we'll spend with these guys. Uh, and uh, And there's so much you can learn from them. And that really opened my eyes and my mindset into how these people operate, how they think. And it made me a much better profiler after doing that. Interesting, in the Mindhunter series, 
<clears throat> the early FBI bosses, you know, were very much against doing that. We don't need to talk to these guys. They're convicted. They're in prison for a reason. No, they have information they can share with us and it can help us solve, you know, future cases. And it really made a, it really made a big difference. And that's what makes a good profiler is uh, among other things. Right. Right. Exactly. Of course, so, most Brad, of my do you have now, any more? I was going to say, most Sorry, of my life ahead. now is uh, most of my work is that of a forensic linguist. And, um, I do a lot more with language analysis, even in the private sector with law firms, um, uh, you know, civil attorneys of different sorts, um, but certainly law enforcement agencies, prosecutors' offices. I just worked two cases in Australia, two separate cases out of Victoria, Australia, of two separate, uh, basically anonymous, you know, letter writers, and uh, we helped solve. I helped solve both of them. They both pleaded guilty once. Uh, they got a hold of my report. The police did great work, too. They had to come up with the suspects. But um, So the bottom line is profiling is good. I can talk about it with the best of them. I can help you know, put some basics together about a case, but put some letters in front of me that are anonymous and uh, give me some known writings, and we call that authorial attribution analysis. And um, if you give me the right you know, suspect, even if you give me a dozen suspects, the real writer is in there of whoever wrote the threatening letter or email or blog post, whatever. Um, I have a pretty good track record there of, uh, of picking out the, the actual author. And, uh, and that's mostly what I do now in terms of my experience from the FBI. And that would be, you know, stalking cases, harassment, threat assessment, that kind of, um, that area. Because in this age, it's so easy now to anonymously make someone else's life hell. Yeah, it is. And I try to help those people if I can uh, through their attorneys or through law enforcement, whatever. And, uh, and uh, if we have enough material and um, there are enough clues in people's writing style that a, a good forensic linguist like myself, who happens to also be a profiler, it's uh, I put both hats on in some cases, uh, if so requested, and uh, we can help narrow down the suspect pool. And that's really all a profiler is designed to do. A profiler doesn't give a name and address of the person who committed the crime, but you narrow the suspect pool on various demographic, uh, personality, if not geographical factors, and then you you know hopefully limit it down to you know nationwide to a thousand. You know, statewide to 100, citywide to a dozen or so, and then the investigators can look at that dozen, we'll say, in a certain uh, city or, or smaller geographic area, and attempt to uh, build their case there from uh, from uh, from the description that you've given as a profiler, and that's what puts it all together. And we kind of do the same thing with uh, linguistic analysis, and uh, and they'll give me the known writings of a dozen people in their office that may have certain characteristics about them. And I have, you know, mm -hmm. 50 emails from each of them. And I can usually rule out, uh, we'll say 10 of them uh, right away. I'll say, give me some more emails from these two and I'll get additional emails. Then in many cases, I'll rule out one more, say, this is your suspect here uh, for this reason, this reason, this reason, this reason, much like I found in the Unabom case uh, almost 25 years ago. Right. All right, Brad. Did you have another question? Do you have some more questions? I do actually. Uh, I was talking uh, with Cody via messenger, and and I was curious. 
we all know the infamous uh, sketch. Um, obviously, you you can't show that sketch and and people not know what it's about. Um, can do you have any insight on the origin of that sketch and did that help or hinder your uh, particular investigation of the case? It certainly didn't hurt the investigation. And when I teach, you know, I, I have a three hour presentation I do on this case. If someone, if they have that time, I also have an hour version, even a half hour version, but I always reach a point that after um, 15 or so, I'm sorry, after um, about nine years from 78 to 87, the only clue they had was, uh, was that composite sketch. And it turns out there were two composite sketches. There was one done earlier uh, at the site uh, at the computer store in, uh, in Utah in 1987. And uh, that was done by one individual that, uh, um, you know, had, had some arguable value, value to it. And then the second one was done a few years later by a woman named Jeannie Boylan. And, uh, and that's the one that really became famous or iconic uh, to use the probably the right description for it. So there were actually two versions of it. Um, neither of them really helped solve the case. I mean, you can look at a picture of Ted Kaczynski and look at the composite and ask yourself, is this really what uh, it looks for? But I learned a long time ago, working bank robberies and other violent crimes, that if there's a composite sketch that goes out and all of a sudden the individual stops offending, it may or may not actually look like him, but what's important is the offender thinks it looks like him, and that's when he stops. <coughs> Excuse me. And, um, and we thought in this particular case, um, and I didn't come into Unabom until 95, and he stopped offending in 1987 once that initial composite went out. So looking at the case in retrospect, when I came on board, I said, well, the one thing is he certainly thought that uh, he came close to getting captured that day, and he must think that that looked like him, and that was enough for have him go dark for six years. Now, of course, he came back, and he changed his M.O., uh, his modus operandi, and that is he never placed a device again because where that composite sketch came from was outside a computer score, store. Someone looked through a window and saw him, and, uh, and that's where the sketch came from. From uh, 93 on, when he started bombing again, uh, they were always mailed from the San Francisco Bay Area. So uh, he learned his lesson. He was never going to be seen again putting a device down in a parking lot on a park bench or, or wherever. And uh, so, um, but I don't think the composite, I, I even think David Kaczynski may have looked at it and he didn't necessarily see his brother in it. Uh, but of course the guy had, you know, a hoodie, he had aviator sunglasses. We even read in his notes in his own journal that he put like chewing gum. He had it like uh, up in his uh, upper lip or something just to make his, uh, or no, maybe it was, I'm sorry. It was it was in his in his cheeks. He would put some kind of material to make his face look fatter. Then he'd spit it out once he walked away from the scene. Uh, although the composite doesn't really reflect that. So he was doing a lot of different tricks uh, to make himself look different. So uh, the composite really was the only evidence the FBI had as of 1987. But when he came back in '93, bombing again, of course, uh, um, the evidence then included his writings. And that's eventually was uh, was his Waterloo, and that's what uh, that's what got him arrested. 
Absolutely, and I know that uh, it is, <clears throat> excuse me, quite impressive with, especially in that time frame from, uh, you know, from the arrest and then the bombing. I know that the FBI and, and the Department of Justice had to be stretched pretty thin, you know, obviously with, you had Waco at the time, and then you come with uh, the Oklahoma City bombing. Um, and, you know, and I thought the interesting thing about it was is that uh, Timothy McVeigh actually shared a, uh, in the same prison for a, a few, I believe it was a few months, and they actually had conversations uh, in the yard and kind of came to the conclusion that they had a lot in common, uh, even though they both had radically different uh, opinions in, uh, on, on politics and such. But I wanted to ask you, you had said you had other uh, suspects before uh, you eventually came to uh, Kaczynski. Um, was there any notable uh, suspects that that the general public would have known about that you guys looked at at first with the, as tumultuous as that time frame was. No, no, no name anyone would recognize. And um, some people were eventually interviewed and confronted. Um, of course, their their workmates, their neighbors, their spouses, uh, family members, friends, whatever. But uh, it turns out that some of them were surveilled for a while. You know, perfectly legal. Um, I don't think any wiretaps were ever put up, but mail covers. You could look at at least the letters coming in the mail, where they're postmarked from, return addresses. So some things like that. Um, there was one guy, I think he lived in Oakland, and um, this was after the manifesto was published, and his landlord thought he may be the Unabomber because he had an old-fashioned typewriter in his apartment. And he sat and he took – we didn't ask him to do this, but I think he actually typed – he took some paper down, typed you know a few sentences on it, and pulled it out and sent it to us. And uh, then he gave us some writings of this guy. So I think the – because he, he wasn't acting as a police agent, I think we were allowed to take that typewritten document. We sent it off to the lab, and they came back and said, no, it's, uh, it's not the same as the Unibomb typings. But before we even got those results – the landlord happened to have some letters the guy wrote, you know, a few pages, maybe five or six pages. I was the language expert. They sent it to me. Uh, I compared it to the manifesto and said, no, it's, it's not him. Um, but um, no, there, and, and, and this was in my, uh, this is in my book too, of course. Um, um, there was an individual named Leo Burt, who is still a wanted fugitive from a bombing at the university of Wisconsin I think in 1970, and there are people on the Unabomb task force that thought possibly Leo Frederick Burt was his first, his full name, B-U-R-T. They thought maybe he was the Unabomber. And um, as I wrote my book, kind of a humorous anecdote, um, that was kind of publicized. We weren't keeping that a secret. They were putting pictures out of Burt saying, look, you know, we weren't even necessarily connecting him to Unabomb, but saying, hey, if anyone knows this guy, you know, uh, call us. Uh, he's wanted from 1970. He actually killed somebody at, uh, he was a weatherman, you know, the left, uh, the left, uh, wing activist back in the day. Anyway, a call came into the 800 number in the FBI and we would have agents and other analysts, you know, handle most of these calls. One of them called me, had put the call on hold and said, Fitz, I think you want to talk to this person. Uh, okay. So I pick up the phone, you know, Special Agent Fitzgerald, can I help you? Yes. I, and it's a female voice. And the first thing she said, 
I'm calling about the Unabomber, and I think I slept with him. And I go, just like now, kind of dead silent. Okay, I need some more details than that. Not graphic. Just tell me, like, names and what he looked like. And here she was a professor at a Midwestern university. Uh, And um, when she was in college, she met this really strange guy who uh, was, you know, spouting all these leftist revolutionary, uh, you know, uh, uh, language and ideologies, whatever. And, um, and she did have a intimate relation with him for over a couple nights. Then he left. He never, she never saw him again. He didn't have a car, no tag, a basic description, but he did leave her a book of some sort, some book of poems or, 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 or some, uh, you know, radical type of book. And I asked, do you still have the book? I do. I said, could we take it and send it to our laboratory? <laughs> yes. And we sent an agent over to her Midwestern uh, campus, picked up the book, and it went to the lab. They got some fingerprints out of it, including hers, which we ruled that out. And uh, uh, it turned out it was not the Unabomber. It was not Ted Kaczynski. His fingerprints were not found on it. So one other of the many, many uh, red herrings we followed in this case and uh uh, in terms of other suspects, like I said, you've uh, you've mentioned, but uh, you know, people thought it was Zodiac uh, that he went from killing people, stabbing people, and shooting them close up, uh, tying them up, all these type things, men and women, sort of indiscriminately. Um, and I, I right away from my behavioral experience said, no, it's it's uh, that's not uh, they're not one and the same. So I'm convinced about that. Absolutely. Absolutely. Um, Cody uh, is another co-host of ours. He's been sitting patiently by. I'm going to go ahead and, and turn the floor over to you, Cody. Do you have any questions? Uh, yeah. Um, Mr. Fitzgerald, um, did y'all happen to get so much as like a, a motive uh, from Kaczynski as a, to why he did this? Or was he just um, like an anarchist in general? Because I know you mentioned earlier that he had written or, or has been quoted to say, uh, if I can't be a woman, then I'll just start killing people. Um, I mean, any actual motive behind that or the people that or the victims he chose? Yeah, I put this all at the end of my book, um, um, that the all his targets were representational targets. He didn't know any of them personally. Obviously, some were just left in school buildings or uh, parking lots, uh, but uh, but others were mailed to specific people, and he didn't know any of them. It's just what they represented. And uh, in his personal writings that we got out of the cabin, we realized he chose airlines, the airline industry early on, including trying to bring down American Flight uh, 444 from Chicago to D.C. in uh, 70 – and that was – yeah, that was 79 – um, because uh, jetliners would fly at 35,000 feet over his cabin in Montana. He saw the contrails coming out the back and the little bit of noise from that altitude. And uh, also the contrails bothered him. And that's when he said, I'm going to go after um, uh, the airline industry. And he did. Uh, universities, because he's a frustrated professor, uh, uh, as brilliant as he was, he just knows he didn't get along with his fellow professors. He thought academics were, 
you know, foolish and, uh, and, and not needed. Only, only a few people studying the sciences and botany and, and, and issues like that. Uh, they were the important type of academic subjects, not this nonsense like, you know, uh, psychology or, or philosophy or, 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 or things such as that. So that's where his earliest targets came from. Of course, computers, here's a guy that spent his life, uh, his, his adult life, his early adult life getting a graduate degree in mathematics and um and it would sit it would take him days and days to figure out certain mathematical formulae and what comes along in the right about the time he's getting his PhD not only computers the size of rooms but they're coming smaller and smaller and and basically you can carry them around like in a briefcase or at least put them on a desk uh uh in, in front of you and uh and they could do the same problems in, in seconds, if not quicker. And this had to bother him. And he's, he wrote about that in, in so many words. Now, of course, he was making up this whole thing about the industrial society and the evils of it. Uh, uh, and, um, and that's what he's really hung his hat on, so to speak. But he had all these other personal issues, too. I mentioned the incel issue. He didn't use that word. We didn't use it back then. But frustration with his sexuality his lack of sexual intimacy with a woman and uh, throw in, you know, computers are basically taking away everything he studied to, uh, to be doesn't mean we still don't need mathematicians. We do, but somehow he took that and looked at that in the wrong light and saw these, uh, these devices as being his enemy. So um, throw in, you know, some personality disorders. I'm not sure what his psychological issues are to this day. Uh, Some people say schizophrenia, you know, paranoia. Uh, I, I believe there's, probably a few diagnosable personality disorders. He just didn't really like himself. And if you don't like yourself, you're probably going to not like too many people around you and maybe even society as a whole. You're brilliant. Your IQ is as high as can be measured. Uh, your, your, your parents push you so hard in academics that perhaps you never really develop a social life and uh, a way to cope and to, and to interact with people. And this becomes just a, uh, perfect storm, if you will, the, the perfect uh, soup of what can go wrong with a person. And um, some people may kill themselves. Some people may just uh, crawl up in a ball and die uh, or just move themselves away from society. He did that part, but he decided he also had to kill people. And who did he find? These representational targets, uh, um, uh, either by building, by institution, or by individual names, including some of uh, you know, the, the targets from 93 on. So, um, yeah, so his reasons are as complicated, his victimology, his targeting was as complicated as his, as his own life and his personality is, but, um, but it made sense to him, and I guess that's all that really mattered. Okay. Absolutely. Um, you know, I watched um, a, a documentary also on Netflix, uh, other than the, besides the one you had, it's called Unabomber in his own words. And I guess the lady was granted an interview with him once. And he had spoke about uh, in this interview, and even his own brother David had, had mentioned it, that uh, I guess as a younger child, I guess Ted had gotten sick. And something to do with his mother, um, and he felt isolated at a very young age. Uh, he felt like no one paid attention to him, I guess, and if I'm remembering fully correct. And so 
you know, like you said, there's a ton of, of, uh, I guess, reasons you could say he did it, but uh, it is very interesting in how complex both the bombings and the uh, reasonings are for it. It, it. Sometimes it's it's kind of unimaginable how someone could do that. Uh, it, I shouldn't say sometimes. It is unimaginable why people would stoop to that level, but um, has he spoken to anybody um, in recent times, or is he pretty much kind of stuck to himself in prison? Oh, uh, no, he has a, uh, a large, uh, fan mail base. And, uh, I, he sent a lot of letters out to people. And I think the university of Michigan actually has a library of what he's written to people. I'm not sure how they get all these letters or not. I think the prison may have to make copies of them or something. Uh, so no, he has people. He was actually, he finally met a woman in prison and he was engaged to be married to her. And, um, you can in, in the federal max at uh, Florence, Colorado, the supermax. There's never any conjugal visit. In fact, you can't have any one-on-one. The, your interviews are done through telephones and a, and a piece of plexiglass. So he never even touched this woman. But they were engaged to be married. Then she got cancer and died. Very sad. And here, the one woman in his life. <clears throat> and you could say it's an odd thing or not falling in love with a lifer in prison. It's been known to happen before with women. But um, but nonetheless, it's a sad story. The one woman that really uh, seemed to uh, pay attention to him and had some kind of feeling for him and vice versa, uh, she dies. And uh, uh, apparently he wrote a bunch of letters to hospitals and doctors trying to get some help for her. But uh, it, it just obviously it, it didn't work out. So um, I tried to interview him twice. Um, I, I wrote uh, both times in my in my book uh, in 2007. I tried to. Uh, interview him and uh we had it all set up i was traveling i was already in colorado i was giving a uh, a series of lectures at the air force academy and i had arranged months before with the bureau of prisons for me to go visit ted the next day and he agreed to it etc and next day i get in a rental car driving down the interstate towards florence colorado the prison and about halfway there i get a call from uh, from the correctional officer who was handling him uh, Agent Fitzgerald, yeah, this is uh, Officer So-and-so, yeah. Uh, I got a message from Mr. Kaczynski, yeah. He said he wants me to read this exactly. He says uh, he'd love to talk to you today, uh, but he can't because he's busy. Now, remember, this guy's <laughs> in prison, 365, 724, whatever order you want to put it in. And um, he gets out once a day for a shower, but he's too busy to talk to me. I felt to this day he probably figured that I flew all the way out to Colorado from Washington, D.C., uh, just to talk to him. And he was going to show me because he knows who I am. My name's all over his, uh, his arrest warrant, search warrant, and affidavits. <clears throat> and he figured, I'll show this guy. Here I was in Colorado already uh, for a few mm-hmm. days before that. And as soon as I got the message on my cell phone, I passed a sign that said Pikes Peak. But all right, let's go. I'll climb Pikes Peak, and that's what I did. So uh, I think I had a better day uh, than Kaczynski would have had, any way, shape, or form. So, uh, and I wrote him a letter in 2016 because the Discovery Channel people, the writers, wanted to see if I could actually start a uh, uh, an interaction with them. And uh, I wrote it to him, and uh, he never responded. So, um, and I hand wrote it, by the way. I didn't put it on computer because I know that would turn him off. But I told him who I was what I was doing. Yeah. I'm one of the guys responsible for you being there, 
but um, I could give you a voice like no one else could give you, and uh, we could really get your message out there if you would like. Uh, and actually, the letter itself is in my is in the book. I just uh, I transcribed it there, but uh, but we moved on from there. So, uh, and folks, we're coming up on ten thirty my time. I think we want to. I got to wrap it up here. Any final questions okay. or is there a caller out there? Thank you. I think um, Cody no. may have a question. Well, uh, no caller. No, uh, me, I, he answered my question. Like that was like my main curiosity. Like through all of this and and some of my reading, uh, you know. Um, he mentioned earlier, and we all know that the uh, Kaczynski was arrested in what ninety six. So I mean, I was only five years old at the time of his arrest. So I mean, I was kind of curious as you know, uh, reading about it and reading about the uh, the uh, victim count, like how he had chose his victims, and then. Uh, but that was my question, and he, I mean, it was answered in a very big way, and. I uh, even like the uh, side story about the uh, about the pl- uh, planned visit, um, but I do appreciate you answering my question. You're welcome, and a lot of other unanswered uh, or unasked questions, I should say, are in that chapter there. And as uh, I do like to write in detail, and I think I have kind of a, a friendly style, and I can even be a little humorous at times, even on serious subjects. And again, this book three is my first 10 years. So the first three chapters are me at the FBI Academy. And if you ever wonder Mm -hmm. what it's like to be a new agent in training at the FBI Academy, uh, and it hasn't changed that much over the years, uh, you'll get that there in my seven years in New York and working a few serial killer cases, arresting another FBI agent for being a child molester. So uh, all that stuff is in there in the uh, written book. Much of it's in the audio book and uh, get it for free at a free audiobook codes.com and um, and check it out there's signed copies out there for people if you want to contact me directly so uh, so guys uh, I, I appreciate being on the NCFC inaugural uh, edition of it and uh, uh, live and I know you'll um, uh, this will be uh, you know people can download it uh, afterwards so um, who knows maybe they'll have some other questions then that they can perhaps get them out of my books and absolutely. Great. And what Thank we you also, so much for what, joining us. Sorry, Brad. What we also do is, I'm just saying, what we also do is, I will uh, put this on a, uh, a, also on YouTube as well, um, okay. at our N, NCFC, and I will put the link to your free, um, the audio book for you because I, I, I'm not a big reader, but I'm a, I'm a great listener. At least that's uh, what I've been told. Um, so. I'll definitely put that out there for people to to check out, and then uh, if they have any questions, they can comment at the bottom, and uh, I can sure. definitely pass those on to you so that we can respond to our listeners. But again, thank you so much. I, I appreciate you for taking the time, and uh, you know I hope that you uh, stay safe in these in these troubling times that we're in right now in this pandemic. And uh, Mr. Fitzgerald, uh, you have a great evening. You guys too, Lisa, Brad, yes, and Cody. Good you. luck with your new ventures, and uh, you never know, maybe we'll cross paths again. Thank you so much. I do hope so, sir. You're welcome, guys. Thank you. Take yourselves. Thank you. Well, Lisa, I'm telling you right now, I am, I am absolutely. That is by far one of the best conversations that I've ever been a part of. Um, I'm still here, and I'll take the compliment. (laughs) 
Oh, absolutely. Uh, <laughs> so I'll tell you. I'm telling you right now. The Unabomber case was one of the most fascinating things to me, and I can go back and recall uh, as it was going down, and to hear some of the insights was just a, uh, absolutely a thrill to me. Well, I appreciate that. So, guys, thanks, and uh, continue your talk, yes. and I'll see you next time. All right. Yes, sir. You have, thanks. A have a great night. Well, like I was saying, Lisa, and I wasn't sitting in front of the board, but I'm glad that he heard the compliment because it was very genuine. Uh, you know, Lisa, while we have a few minutes, um, you, you know, I know that, that uh, Cody said he was five when he was arrested. You know, I can still recall, though, Lisa, I can still recall sitting at home, and, and I was young. I was born in 78, but I can still remember the fear and the panic that uh, mm-hmm. that happened, you know, because – at the time, you really didn't want to check your mail because you, especially if you got a package, you know, because you were Correct. you were worried, you know. And I don't, you know, I know that's, you know, Cody. I want to ask you, you know, being that you know you were very young, um, you know, what is your initial uh, perception of what what you've heard tonight and in your research? Um, I know that you can't really equate to the technological. Um, Lack thereof back then uh, But you know what is your perception of, of what you heard tonight And your research of the Unabomber Well I mean You know uh, Going back to the uh, mail bombings And stuff you know you were talking about How people were afraid to to open their mail Because they didn't know if they were going to be the next Victim I remember Right around either a little bit before Or a little bit after September 11th They had that anthrax scare Through mail and such and so I remember being a kid having that fear of, uh, you know, opening the mail and then, you know, just killing over. Uh, but after, like, going through my research and stuff, you know, one of the big connections I had made with them uh, before I had even, you know, connected the dots as I was talking to Mr. Fitzgerald was I made the connection to him as a uh, – as Heath Ledger's Joker in Batman's Dark Knight in the sense of he seemed like an anarchist. Um, and, you know, as as Mr. Fitzgerald elaborated on uh, Kaczynski a little more and his motives and stuff, I mean, it all started to make sense. And, uh, and I kind of had my views very, very... Uh, I came in expecting one thing and I came out of it with a whole different perspective. Um, you know, one of the comments I was going to make is, uh, you know, Kaczynski, he, he hated technology for the sense that, you know, it was almost, he felt as if he was being replaced. And I mean, that's a, that's a very common fear, especially in today's society and the advancements of technology. And, uh, you know, and as Mr. Fitzgerald said, we're still in need of mathematicians. You know, I'm a um, quote unquote an engineer by trade, and I've worked a lot with computers and technology. And we need these mathematicians to help us or to translate, you know, to the engineers what is needed to make certain ideas work. And so, I mean, to come in there and and think of you know, the fear he had, which is, you know, some would say it's illogical, and I believe it's really logical because, I mean, you know, even my dad would sit there and tell me as a kid, you know, someday we're not going to be able to work, 
because uh, machines are going to be doing everything. And I've, you know, part of me thinks that may have been what Kaczynski had going on in his head. Uh, but as far as, you know, the uh, the slayings, I mean, it was kind of, you know, to, to want to have a, uh, I guess you would say, a gender change and then realizing that it's not going to happen within a drop of a hat and then just, well, I'll start killing people. That was, that was, uh, that was something, man. I don't know how to describe that. Absolutely. Well, that's not wired right. I want to ask you this. No, he's not. But I wanted Mm -hmm. to ask you something, Lisa. I just thought about that while Cody was talking and then also listening to Mr. Fitzgerald. And I guess I can throw this at both of you. And Lisa, I guess you can go first so we don't talk over each other, but now, with all of the issues that he had with technology and all of the issues with the uh, the transgender issue that, that he uh, faced, we're looking at 2020 right now, and obviously the, the transgender uh, movement, the LGBTQ movement is socially accepted for the most part now. Um, there's a platform virtually anywhere you turn to to put your message out there whether it be Instagram, Twitter, this this platform here, the, the uh, ability for average Joes to host a podcast, uh, YouTube, you know, Vimeo or whatever you want to call it. And it's interesting to me to think what what would Ted Kaczynski be had he been then in today's society? Would we have had a different outcome to any of this uh, is – one of the things that intrigues me the most, and I wasn't quite sure if Mr. Fitzgerald would have been able to answer that because I know his specialty was the linguistics profiling, but I want to ask you, do you think that maybe the times today would have produced a different Ted Kaczynski? Well, there's the potential that it would. For example, the, the severe case of hives when he was about six months old. And he had to be hospitalized for a week. His mother has said, and I know this is from his brother David, that when he came out of the hospital, he wasn't making eye contact. Of course, now we know that sometimes is an indicator of something on the autism spectrum. And his mother actually wanted to have him tested for autism in the fifties in one of the earlier studies, but she didn't like the way the, the doctor running the study dealt with people probably because he himself was somewhere on the spectrum. I think Ted Kaczynski was on the spectrum of autism somewhere. Hmm. And so he, he didn't have, he didn't get social cues, so he had a hard time making friends. Um, he thinks it's because he was put ahead a year, but more likely than not, it was just that he had a hard time. And it was him. And I don't think the sex change was really identifying as a woman. I think he just thought, if I'm a woman, my life will be better, so that's what I'll do. And then he was upset and angry because he didn't get his way when they wouldn't give him pills and and chop off his kibbles and bits. 
right then and there. So, um, so then he decides, you know, to vent that anger. There's a potential because I know if he if he'd been born in 1964 when I was born, um, hospitals didn't keep parents away from their kids. They allowed a parent to stay with the child. They encouraged it. Um, so that you know that connection with his mother at six months old could have been maintained. Um, and right. he would have been diagnosed, probably. Well, not necessarily, because I know, you know, in the seventies, autism still was not something that was was quite quite as diagnosed or as understood as it is now. Oh, absolutely. Or in Cody, the last uh, 15, 20 years. Oh, absolutely. Cody, do you – that I pose that question to you. Do you see a significant difference in, in Ted Kaczynski, or do you think that he would have just ventured into a, a new avenue of of getting his you – know, I mean, obviously we were told that, you know, the thrill of that, – that there was a potential that he had just a thrill, a, a kill thrill. Um. I mean, uh, at a different time, had he have been born, you know, 20, 30 years later, we probably there's a possibility we could have seen a, a different Ted Kaczynski, you know, with that, because you know you would have people to to tell him that hey, you know, technology isn't here to to take anything away from you, it's here to make life easier, um, you know, and people with your ability can help with that. Um, however, you know, we talk about the uh, gender reassignment and whatever. Uh, could some of it be like, uh, I don't know, maybe just attention in general? Uh, because, I mean, that gender reassignment, he said, was what, the 60s when he wanted to do it? Late 60s, early yeah, with, 70s? Uh, no, I think it was the late uh, – it was while he was at Michigan earning his doctorate. Uh, prior to 1969, when he earned his doctorate and went to uh, University of California at Berkeley, where he was an associate professor. So it was probably around between 67 and 69. Okay. Somewhere um, in, that, I mean, in that window. And I mean, you know, we were talking, you know, maybe, you know, he believed life would be easier if he was a woman. But in a sense, I was also at a time where, I mean, even today where it's, I mean, quote, unquote, socially acceptable uh, for gender reassignment, you know, even today there's still partial ridicule. Imagine then, you know, he would have definitely faced ridicule and harassment of all sorts, I mean, especially at that time because, I mean, it, it started becoming more common then, but, I mean, you know, we're talking about the times of, you know, you had events like Stonewall and such happen too. So, I mean, if he had a gender, was to have a gender reassignment, you know, we could have possibly had a, could have possibly had the same Ted Kaczynski mm -hmm. in the sense of he'd have a different kind of motive. Like yeah. the motive could possibly and change. Gender reassignment has always been and still is. It is a multi-year process, and there is a lot of 
you know, you have to undergo a lot of psychological evaluation uh, to determine whether or not you're suitable for it. So he wasn't, you know, he wasn't being treated wrongly uh, when he sought gender reassignment. It's just that the process was not going to be the quick process that he wanted, and and so he didn't get his way. Or the quick one that he expected, I think that was one of the things with Ted. He may have been very, very intelligent, but I, I think once he got something, some idea in his head, you couldn't convince him otherwise. Absolutely. He didn't want to hear. Well, right. Well, Lisa, um, you know, we, Mr. Uh, Mr. Fitzgerald has, has, you know, left the show. Uh, and so I wanted to take a few minutes before we get off here uh, to kind of talk about the premise for our upcoming shows. I know that uh, me and, and Cody had discussed uh, several months ago when we, started hatching the idea of, of No Country for Conspiracy, of talking about the Jonestown Massacre and kind of delving into that. And I, I think that may be the topic that we're going to cover next week, um, you know, discuss the parameters and the particulars of that instance. Uh, I know that a lot of us, a lot of listeners, if they tune in, uh, may be used to the old behind-the-curtain format, uh, which was, you know, a lot of paranormal uh, but I'd like to still do some paranormal, but I do want to focus on some true crime mm-hmm. and, uh, you know, events of, of, of significance, like maybe discuss the Waco situation at, at length uh, at some point. Obviously, we're, you know, they've been done a hundred times, but each person has a different opinion and, and brings a particular to the topic. So, you know, I think it's good that we do that as well. But, um, again, all of these are going to go on YouTube uh, for sure. And we'll have a YouTube channel set up for the show as well. Uh, so you can go and listen to that. Or you can go on blogtalkradio.com uh, uh, and check it out. You can also, I believe, we're podcasted on iTunes. Is that correct, Lisa? I, I know you and Michael had worked something out at some point. App, Apple Podcasts, I believe. I don't have I don't have Apple stuff. So I don't keep track of anything to do with Apple. Right. I don't have an iPhone. I have an Android. <laughs> so, but yeah, I believe it's Apple Apple Podcasts. It may be iTunes. It, um, I, I'm not an iTunes. I'm I, a, I'm a, uh, an Android I, person myself. But and, and, you know, we will <laughs> effort. Yeah, obviously we'll effort to, to get an expert uh, guest uh, as as often as we can. Uh, I want to thank Lisa for for in short notice pulling the uh, Fitzgerald interview together. Um, definitely, I, I'm walking away from this experience tonight with a better concept and grasp of of uh, Theodore Kaczynski uh, for sure. Um, you know, and and it was interesting and it was really neat to see the inner workings. I know a lot of people probably Lisa and, and Cody are fascinated and I think that's why we're drawn to these documentaries that are presented on Netflix and Hulu and all mm-hmm. of that. Uh because, you know, it, it is interesting. It's that fly on the wall concept, I guess, you know, on how what was talked about and the process of how they came to figure this out. Um, uh, especially uh, something that was ongoing for almost eighteen years. Um 
and you have to kind of for the for the victims of of the Unabomber uh, Ted Kaczynski, you have to almost uh, be thankful that that he decided to write a manifesto and say anything because he could have easily just done what he did and mm-hmm. left it at that. And that's why you know I will say that I think there was that motive of the industrial uh, and uh, machine, as he called it. Because I think if he had just had a, a, a kill thrill, he would have just kept doing this until he got tired of it, and he wouldn't need the notoriety. So uh, thank goodness for those people that can, can seek their justice uh, by him publishing that manifesto and basically wanting to take credit for, for what he had done. Right. But, you know, that's the weird thing is that he didn't do that until the 1990s. And I believe it was in, he started writing letters in the 80s, but they were all ruse letters. They were trying to um, misdirect the investigation. So, um, absolutely. Well, Lisa, I mean, it it wasn't uh, until 95 that he suddenly uh, wanted credit. I I say we go ahead and and we wrap this thing up tonight and we uh, move on uh, for sure. Because I believe that we we've got something good here, and and I know that Cody. Uh, mm-hmm. I think we're going to go ahead and settle on uh, the Jonestown massacre for next week's show. Uh, we may be able to pull somebody in. If not, we'll talk about it uh, at length as, as as much as we can. So, uh, I guess we'll have a great well, show. I, uh, <laughs> I I hate to tell you this, but I'm a person, I remember this. I was 15 when this happened. Because I was in November of 1979. The only recollection that I have is just from from reading about it. um, You know, obviously there's been a couple of of mass cult suicide groups that have that have occurred but this is by far one of the biggest ones but uh we've got about 15 minutes left so i say we go ahead and 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 wrap it up tonight and we'll be back uh, next wednesday at eight o'clock all righty yeah yeah we will be back next wednesday uh in preparation for uh for the uh, Jonestown massacre, I encourage you all to uh, to stay healthy. Um, don't take any Kool Aid or Flavor Aid anybody gives you <laughs> until then. And uh, the flavor will be delivering next week on the Jonestown massacre. I encourage y'all all to tune in and listen. Oh, absolutely. Well, for myself, uh, Lisa O'Brien and Cody Downs. We hope you've enjoyed the uh, interview tonight with Mr. James Fitzgerald. This has been an episode of No Country for Conspiracy. Please stay tuned to Facebook and YouTube as this episode will be posted uh, within the next 24 hours. Again, y'all have a great night. Stay safe, stay sanitized, and we'll see you next Wednesday.
Russia, no America. 